The year is 1976, and the Viking spacecraft Viking 1 and Viking 2 have just been inserted into Mars orbit, each carrying with them several instruments and a lander which would go on to collect significant data about the Martian surface. And while the Viking missions led to the first US lander operating on Mars, along with a slew of other scientific discoveries on the planet's climate and surface conditions, another accomplishment of the mission was that it provided us with a much better understanding of the temperature and material properties of the entire planet. And it did this through two resources. And one of those was an instrument called the Infrared Thermal Mapper, or IRTM for short, which was a multi-channel radiometer mounted to the exterior of the Viking orbiter. And in being a radiometer, IRTM measured the amount of thermal radiation coming from Mars, which could then be used to map the surface temperature and better understand the composition of ground frost and clouds. The other resource is a computational model that can predict the surface temperature and material properties on Mars in various seasonal conditions. Now, this model is called KRC, and it has become renowned in the geophysics world as the gold standard for predicting temperatures on Mars and other planetary bodies. I got the opportunity to chat with the principal investigator of IRTM and the creator of KRC himself, Dr. Hugh Kiefer, and boy what an awesome conversation it was. So if you are interested in learning about geophysical modeling and stories from the Viking era, then I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you learn something from it. And with that, welcome fellow space enthusiasts to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which explores the details behind how spacecraft and payloads are developed and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, coming to you from the oven otherwise known as Arizona, where getting into your car means that you must face the wrath of a thousand suns. In this conversation with Dr. Hugh Kiefer, we discussed his career paths in geophysics, why and how KRC was created to support Viking, as well as what it was like to develop KRC during the 1970s using computers that only had four megabytes of memory. Now, allow me to just pause there for a second and say that if you want a sense of how small that is, go and look at the size at some of the images on your phone and see how they compare. A handful of mine are larger than that. <laughs> so considering this, it's absolutely incredible to look back on what we were able to accomplish with the resources that we had 40 to 50 years ago. And one of my favorite parts of this episode was actually talking to Hugh about his experiences working on Viking during the operations phase. Now, if you're not familiar with the Viking mission, there is an orbiter and a lander aspect, and it was up to the data collected by the orbiter to decide where the lander was going to touch down on Mars. Now on paper, you know, maybe that doesn't sound so bad. But when you throw in unforeseen conflicts regarding where the landing should take place and a compressed timeline for making that incredibly large decision, that situation becomes very challenging very quickly. As the PI of IRTM, Hugh got a chance to experience all of that firsthand, so we explore that a little bit toward the end of the episode. Today's episode is also co-hosted by my dear friend Addie Cooler, who's known Hugh for years and is the one who actually introduced me to him in the first place. Now, another way that this actually ties into today's episode is that Addie and I actually both work under Dr. Phil Christensen at ASU, who was Hugh's student back when he did his PhD in geophysics and space physics at UCLA. Now, Addie was persuaded over into the geology side and is working on his PhD under Phil, and I'm currently working with Phil's engineering group on their infrared imaging systems. So that's how Addie got to know Hugh through Phil and how all of this kind of comes back full circle. 
And one more thing that I want to mention about this episode is that we toss the word thermal inertia around quite a bit, and we don't actually define what it is in the interview. So in case you're not familiar with this idea, thermal inertia is basically a material's resistance to a change in temperature. So if the temperature of a material isn't easily affected by its surroundings, it is said to have a very high thermal inertia, or thermal resistance. A good example of this would be concrete. It gets very hot, but it takes a very long time to heat up and cool down. So when we mention thermal inertia, that's essentially what we're referring to. And with that, I think that covers everything for an introduction to this episode. So without further ado, allow me to introduce Dr. Hugh Kiefer. cleaning up things here a little bit. I'm setting, I'm setting an alarm for my next meeting, which is at 9.30.09. I'm going to set it at 09.25. All right, done all that. Looks like we're actually running. So you're going to have a picture of a ceiling behind me. We can change that if you wish. Or you're really only interested in the audio? Yeah, we're not. I'm not going to post the video or anything like that. Okay, but it is good to see you. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah, I don't see very many people. I hardly ever go out. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want to do? We've got like a, a list of questions that kind of just touch on um, a couple of different things between our IRTM and KRC, and and you know, just I guess your experience in general. Of- I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Hattie. Yeah, basically. And yeah, thank you again for doing this. And uh, yeah, like Sarah said, we have a list of questions that we were just going to run through and then just, yeah. Did you find the JPL interview? The JPL interview? Did I, I mentioned the JPL had interviewed several people from the Viking era 25 years later, um, like Gentry. Nice. Have you met Gentry Lee, you guys? Nope. I've heard, we've heard of him. I've seen his So You Want to Be a Systems Engineer video. Yeah, okay. Which is very good. Um, Yeah, well, anyway, so there is someplace um, a JPL uh, done interview of me during the Viking era, which would Mm. cover some of that and tell some stories, including stories about Gentry. Um, Good or bad? (laughs) Well, there's meant to be humorous. Um, but you guys are too young to remember Premier Khrushchev. It all it all actually relates to him, hmm. but that's another story. Um, let me start at the beginning because you guys are IRTM KRC specific. I will start, and I'll just try to reminisce here. Um, I had. Uh, I was an undergrad at Caltech. I went off and worked for, actually went off to graduate school and ended up getting uh, diverted to the Antarctic. Um, Came back, went to work for JPL for a couple of years and went back to grad school at Caltech. They don't normally take their own undergraduates, but I somehow talked them into it. Um, Did a thesis on laboratory simulations of the polar caps of Mars for spectroscopy. 
what would they look like depending on their composition. In that process, I borrowed some hardware from a physicist named uh, Gary Neugebauer and got to know him a little bit in borrowing this hardware. At some point, somehow, they came to me and said they needed a thermal model for Mars because they had these observations they were just getting with Mariner 6 and 7 with the IRR, the infrared radiometer, which was a single spot, um, two band system. And, but they had no thermal model to know what to compare the results to. So I wrote a thermal model in Fortran. I started it when I was at Caltech and as a graduate student, and I finished it when I was at UCLA as an assistant professor. And I mostly ran it at UCLA. And Adi knows some of this story, maybe. Um, UCLA at that time had the largest unclassified computer in the world. It was a brand new IBM 36091 with four megabytes of memory. <laughs> it took up a floor of the physics building. Um, and I knew that I was going to have to do a lot of calculations. So I very carefully optimized the code to run as quickly as I could, never recomputing anything I didn't have to. And running KRC for 19 latitudes, 24 times a day with um, probably 16 intervals per output hour on that machine, a single case of thermal inertia and albedo took an hour. So for each case, I had to use the you know, university's entire computing facilities for an hour. And that's why KRC is so carefully coded. And of course, now it runs lickety split. Um, as an aside, so, and the way you ran these things, of course, was you submitted a card deck. Remember punch cards? Yep. You know, so I'd have a card deck you know, a full box of cards to run for KRC probably. I don't remember how many cards it was. So you, and you take those to a little room that's not in the computer room, but next to it, and you put them through a card reader and you go away. And sometime later, printout comes out through the wall. They had a printer on the other side of the wall that fed the old standard 132 character printout out. And would come out through the wall and that was your result. You didn't get digital results, you got printout. Um, and so all the early results were hand plotted because we didn't have plotters either in those days. Um, as an aside, at one point I went and, and you get a little bill, you know, it says so many minutes, there's the bill. I was doing this one day and I got a bill for $2 million. <laughs> <laughs> Something had gone wrong in their accounting system. It was two. It was some not number, you know, in excess of two million dollars, which I eventually straightened out. So that's the origin of KRC. 
and it had a thin atmosphere, very stupid back radiation from the atmosphere. Um, just a, I think it was a sine wave in time. That was it with a fixed constant. Um, and I ran three cases and that's what the IRTM JGR paper, the first big paper was based on three cases so that I could get a nominal case and partial derivatives in inertia and um, albedo. That was the origin of KRC. That was about, I started coding probably uh, about 68 or 69 and um, used it for the analysis of the Mariner six and seven and nine experiments. And so I got to know, in fact, they invited me to be an effective member of the Mariner 9 IRR team. And um, I ended up writing the primary paper for that um, experiment. Um, and I, so I got to know these guys. Well, time and a half went by and um, the Viking mission was announced and they put out a set of, of requests for proposal for scientific instruments. The set of guys I was working with, which were um, Gary Neugebauer, Guido Munch, Gary Neugebauer was in the physics department, Guido Munch was an astronomer, Stillman Chase, who you've met, um, was an engineer at SBRC, and uh, Ellis Minor was an astronomer at JPL. So those four had done the first three experiments and they were weary of being PIs. Um, and they said, would you, would you be PI for a proposal for Viking? I said, okay, not knowing any better. And, <laughs> and uh, so we got together and um, decided what we thought we could build, we could do at, the, at that time. And I actually did most of the design, uh, conceptual design, and we worked with Stillman at SBRC to come up with an actual instrument proposal and submitted it. And to my surprise, or maybe not surprise in, because we were sort of the only game in town in terms of infrared. Um, nobody else was near the level of this group. Um, our proposal was accepted. And so at age 28, I became the youngest PI on the Viking mission. Um, and that, of course, led to uh, a huge commitment in time for the next 10 years, which is basically all I did for 10 years. I mean, I was still teaching at UCLA and I had a lab that I was, I, was, I built up a, a frost lab at, uh, at UCLA and had graduate students, um, some of whom you know well. <laughs> and um, it was a pretty busy time. And it, it uh, I was pretty much fully committed to getting this thing to work and it did and it was quite successful. Um, that's a, a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of individual things went on during that time, but it was, um, you know, I had a, um, my son Robert was born in 1968 when this was starting. So I had a young kid 
We lived, we were very fortunate in being able to live close to UCLA. My wife had also been a graduate student. Our son was the first child of Caltech, the first person born to simultaneous Caltech students. I mean, the first ever in the world. <laughs> so he was the first Caltech baby. He was actually on the on the front or back cover of one of their monthly uh, publications, but we've never been able to find a copy. Even wow. Caltech can't find a copy. Um, I'm just wandering here. Anyway, uh, <laughs> very busy and it created a somewhat difficult marriage in the sense that both of us were extremely busy. Uh, and eventually that you know, after 24 years, yeah, we were married for 24 years. Eventually, Sue and I fissioned and went our separate ways. Um, KRC was used uh, extensively um, for papers following the, the, you know, the initial thing. Eventually, I, I added more capability other people and I group started to use it. it was a guy who I had who had actually been a student of mine not I wasn't his doctoral chairman but he was a student at UCLA went to JPL and wanted to run thermal models on comets and so I made a version of KRC which you guys have never seen that had a moving grid system so as the comet ablated the whole grid system moved down relative to the surface through the material, keeping track of the temperatures as it went. And that was the KRC thermal model. And that was used quite a bit in the yeah, 70s, early 80s for studies of comets. And I abandoned it eventually. It got too complicated to keep going. Um, and since then, KRC has been evolutionary in the sense when people need a capability, I just had it. Um, and it's now, um, I guess, being used a lot, but I don't hear much from the guy, people who are using it. So I guess it fits their needs. I don't know. Adi, you would know better than I. You're in the thick of it there. <laughs> um, and of course, it's still in Fortran. Uh, and it, the interfaces to it that I've written are largely an IDL, but um, it produces binary files and you just access those files. As an aside, Chris and Stefan, not Stefan, Sylvan, have sort of taken it over and built this um, interface, DaVinci interface to it. And it's pretty hard to see where KRC is anymore. It's buried someplace under all the DaVinci stuff. And I'm going to try to talk to Phil to get it re-exposed. So at least it's available if people want to run it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, uh, this is again an aside, not part of this history so much, but uh, um, when people have problems, I, I work directly with their input file, not the DaVinci stuff, because mm -hmm. who knows what might have happened in there. So I always work directly with the, the input to the Fortran system. Um, I don't know how popular KRC is. I don't know how many people use it. 
outside of Phil's group. Um, I think it's still considered pretty much a standard for at least Mars. Um, I have not really, I, I haven't promoted it beyond what the website has. And um, so I don't know how widely it's used. I think We're, through JMARS, um, a lot of people do use it, especially these days. Uh, so again, it's buried underneath the software, so they don't actually see it, but um, it's used in that format. Well, that's cool. I didn't yeah. actually know JMARS incorporated that. Mm -hmm. That's neat. Here with you, Ada, um, if we could go back in time, so you sort of skimmed over your start. And I was just wondering what got you interested in, what, what was your undergrad like? And what, uh, I think it was in physics, right? And yeah, um, in physics. Were you always interested in space and? Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> so um, a little bit of history. Um, I had elderly parents. My father was born in 1896 and my mother in 1898. And I was born in 1939. So my mother was 44 years old when I was born. Um, she was, uh, she had been to college, which in those days was rare for a woman. My father finished high school in Paris. He was born in Paris. And that's all the education he had, all the formal education he had. But when he came to the U.S. for reasons I can go back into, but basically he was a um, an uh, X-ray inventor and technician. He invented um, analog tomography. Um, it was actually simultaneously invented in Europe and the U.S. independently. But the ability to take X-rays of a single plane of the body, you know, getting rid of the stuff above and below with an analog, a very complicated analog mechanism, something he invented and it was patented and developed and became the standard x-ray machine for the US. So he, he was a self-educated scientist, basically. And when I was a kid, if I had a question, I often did, I would say, what's, you know, Tell me about this. And he would point me to a book. And he says, the answer is in that book over there. And sometimes that would be the Encyclopedia Britannica. But usually <laughs> it was some book that we had around the house. And I still have some of these. Um, one was a picture book of mechanisms. Every conceivable mechanism you could think of. And I poured through that. And I was really interested in it because... Um, I, it's on the shelves behind me, actually, someplace, um, unless I've given it to my son to give to my grandson. So I grew up in an environment where um, careful thinking was part of the process. And uh, I became interested in um, astronomy as a kid. I have a book on constellations. I would go out and lay on top of the roof of our flat-topped garage with telescopes made out of toilet roll centers and a few lenses I could find someplace. Um, camera lenses, my dad was interested in photography, so you could take a few camera lenses together and make a telescope. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Um, so I was interested in science from the beginning. And one story I've often told is when I was in the third grade, 
I went to a little four-room schoolhouse. The same 14 kids were my classmates for eight years um, in rural Connecticut. You know, so 14 kids in my high school, in my grammar school class. In the third grade, one of the teachers made a statement that the moon didn't rotate. And I said, oh, yes, it does. And she said, no, it doesn't. We always seem the same side. And I wouldn't accept her answer. So it got escalated to the principal. <laughs> <laughs> and she decided I was right. <laughs> the moon does rotate. That was in the third grade. And I've sort of been like that ever since. Um, I try to think out things for myself. When I read the paper, if there's, an, if there's a numerical or even factual statement that seems unreasonable, I'll try to check it out and do a mental calculation. Does that seem reasonable? It's not uncommon for our local paper to be off by a factor of 1,000 or something. <laughs> we have a little local paper that is not very high quality. I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, which is the only printed newspaper that I could, of any quality that I could get here. The New York Times isn't available. So I read the Wall Street Journal and even find mistakes in that, though they're admittedly rare. Um, so I grew up interested in science, went to high school at an interesting place, had a very peculiar and fun algebra teacher, which was okay because I already knew algebra. When I was Another grammar school story. Uh, when, I, when I was in some grade or other, I did something wrong at school. I don't remember what it was. And I got sent home with a note that to my parents that said, here is to write out, I will not do whatever it was. I was supposed <laughs> to write it out a thousand times. My father thought that was silly. And so he negotiated with the school. What if I learned algebra instead? This is probably the fifth grade. And they said, okay. <laughs> so he gave me an algebra book and I learned algebra in a week. And uh, algebra is actually pretty simple. I'm trying to teach it to my grandkids at the moment, but they don't see it as being that simple. <laughs> it's really nothing but symbolic manipulation. That's what algebra is. Anyway, um, so I, when we were, when I was in the ninth, at the end of my ninth grade year, I had one year in high school in Connecticut. We moved to Northern California, finished high school there, and applied to um, Caltech as a, you know, as a high school senior. Um, Caltech was pretty small and is still pretty small in some senses. It doesn't have very many undergraduate students. It, then it had, I think, 600 or 680 undergraduates, and Everybody who applied was interviewed by a Caltech professor who would travel to wherever they were and interview them. And so I had a, an interview with somebody or other who I don't remember and got accepted and went to Caltech as an undergraduate in physics. And I was an ivory tower physicist and I knew the math and the physics, but I didn't understand the real world. And at some place in the first year, I had a psychological fallout with Maxwell's equations because I thought, you know, they should come from someplace. It turns out they're empirical, like almost all physics is. And I somehow that didn't set well with me. I thought they had to come out of the universe on a golden plate or something. And uh, <laughs> anyway, um, 
all Caltech undergraduates at that time had to take geology. And um, I did, and the geology fact, the professor who gave the course was spectacular, a guy named Bob Sharp, now gone, of course. And so I decided that plus my falling out with physics and why, why don't I go into a profession where I can be outdoors. I like to be outdoors. I did a lot of hiking even in high school. Um, so I said, Let, I'll try geology. So I, I transferred to geology and uh, finished my undergraduate degree in geology. Um, was interested in the Antarctic. I don't remember why, but I was interested in the Antarctic. And I was certainly interested in glaciers because this Bob Sharp was a, basically a geomorphologist. And I had, I, um, boy, now the question is sequence. Yeah, I had, I'd been interested in, I was like mountains, I like glaciers. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin Graduate School in, in geophysics, basically, in glaciology. Um, and about two months into graduate school at Wisconsin, they, they had a, they were a school that did polar exploration in science. One of their people in the Antarctic developed hepatitis and had to get brought back to the US. And so they were short one person and they asked me if I'd like to go. And they, they gave me an interesting choice out of you. This is, you're both graduate students, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. They gave me an interesting choice. They said, you can go as a graduate student, pay your fees and you will accumulate um, semesters of graduate residency, which are required for a PhD. I don't know if that's true any longer. You actually have to be a student for a certain length of time to get a PhD. That was a requirement. And I said, or you can go as a civilian um, and we'll pay you $400 a month. <laughs> I didn't have any money. I mean, I, I was dirt poor as a, as a student. And um, so I said, okay, I'll. So I dropped out, dropped out in the sense of graduate school, went to the Antarctic as an employee and went through Pasadena on the way. Now, the summer after my, I got my bachelor's degree, I had worked for JPL, actually employed by JPL as a geologist working in the middle of the Mojave Desert in the summer at Goldstone. You know, the temperature is like 110 every day. You guys live in Phoenix, it doesn't seem unusual to you, but yeah. <laughs> the middle of the Mojave Desert gets the Goldstone's surrounded by military reservations, which is one of the reasons it's there, so that nobody gets into it. Um, and I worked out there for the summer looking for, just ass assessing the geology, the water resources, where you might put more antennas and so forth. So after I left Wisconsin, I dropped through Pasadena on the way to the Antarctic. I mean, I really have my air reservations already. And um, I just went and visited the guys I'd worked with and they made me a job offer I couldn't refuse. Um, 
that was to come back to work for JPL and to find the place to put the 70 meter antennas around the world. Um, and that was a, a terrific job. And I said, okay, I will take it up as soon as I get back. So I went off to the Antarctic, came back, I mailed my, my roommate at, at Madison and said, send all my stuff to Pasadena and he did. So I came back to Pasadena and went to work for JPL for two years, traveling around the world mostly, um, um, looking for the proper environment in all ways for the 70 meter antennas and ended up, um, I didn't make the selection of course, I just provided all the information including sort of the, the, where, to, where to put them. And uh, we did that in, uh, they ended up in Australia and uh, Spain. Very cool. And so that was, uh, got me back to, to Pasadena. And after a couple of years of that, when I finished the primary work, I could have kept working at JPL and other stuff, but I, I applied to Caltech and went back as a graduate student in um, planetary sciences. They had just started that, um, what's a program, it just started. And so I was like the first or second student into the program. Um, and then it was pretty straightforward. I, uh, I um, you know, you take courses, you figure out what you want to do for a thesis. And I had a very interesting thesis and four advisors because it covered areas that you know, none of them understood all of. But, and uh, Andy Ingersoll, you've met Andy Ingersoll, I think. Um, not met him, but I know of him. Uh, I haven't. Andy Ingersoll, Jim Westfall, Barkley Cam, um, and Bruce Murray were my co-advisors on the thesis. Mm -hmm. um, some of them, those guys, you know, um, and, uh, you know, that worked well. And I, uh, in the process, I met S Susan um, and Susan Werner at that time. And a bunch of things happened. We ended up getting married in graduate school, had the first Celtic kid. Um, a lot of little adventures in graduate school um, provided a lot of experience. So because I had an experimental thesis, sort of experimental theory and theory, I just learned a lot about how things are done. And it turns out um, that's becoming increasingly rare for people to have sort of the, the breadth of experiences I had. Um, partly because, because just knowing how things work, um, when I grew up, the, the kids in high school worked on cars. And nobody, no private individual works on cars anymore, basically, except for a few old guys who, for whom it's still a hobby. But in those days, you worked on cars, all parts of it. You made them go because they, they break and you'd fix them. And in that process, you just learn about mechanics and hydraulics and electricity at a pretty low level, but moderately sophisticated, and that gives you a start of understanding what's actually going on inside a piece of hardware. And when I was a, um, 
when I was a graduate student, I built a lot of stuff, including my own electronics. I built synchronous demodulators. And um, when I went to UCLA, I started a lab. I, I didn't have much money. And uh, they gave me a seed money, but I ended up building a lot of stuff. So I just learned how you make things. And that has proved useful in trying to look at um, you know, you know, plans for future missions. So I ended up eventually, you know, after resign, I resigned from the USGS, big jump in time here. We're skipping Flagstaff entirely. Um, but after I retired from the USGS, um, NASA immediately asked if I would review um, various things, mostly Mars missions, but occasionally um, other things. And uh, so I spent a lot of almost 10 years, a lot of time looking in detail at both the instruments and the spacecraft that are JPL's planetary mission. How are we doing? Doing pretty yeah, good. Yeah, really good. Yeah, no, yeah. this is awesome. Yeah. What was, uh, <laughs> as in sort of a side, what was Phil like as a grad student? <laughs> Well, I actually started as an undergrad. Okay, yeah, yeah. He and Bruce Joukowsky were undergrads, and they took, um, I don't know how they got it, because they couldn't have taken the graduate course. I was, of course, I was teaching a graduate course in planetary sciences, but I also, when you're taught the university-wide geology course, you know, geology, one, geology 100, um, and that in itself was a lot of fun because you've got, it's a class of 600 students at UCLA. And so I had probably four or five TAs dealing with subgroups. And I gave the lectures and, and made the exams and everything. And there's a lot of interesting stories there. Um, Phil and Dave Page and Bruce Joukowsky. Now, wait a minute, I've got this wrong. <laughs> Bruce and Dave were undergraduates. Phil was a graduate student. And uh, I don't know how he got it, how he or why he got into this program. Um, and actually, I was so busy. You see, Phil came in at the very beginning of the Viking mission. Um, all three of these guys were known to me and somehow uh, once we got near to getting to Mars and trying to land on Mars, which nobody had ever done before successfully, it's another story. I can tell you about the Russians. Um, I was almost living at JPL. Um, a, a typical, it was 80 hour weeks, just routine. Um, and um, Phil and Dave and Bruce, I, I hired to help just to do whatever needed to be done, which were lots of things, including programming. Um, Bruce actually did some programming and making a, a version of KRC that ran for cubic blocks. Um, and they all were, we were working round the clock during um, the Viking landing. 
Phil was a graduate student and, and basically everybody took time off from school for a few weeks around the Viking landing. And I don't know if Phil has talked to you about this ever, his experiences. Um, it, was, no. it was incredibly intense. Um, I had hired Terry Martin, who you may have met, who was a, as a postdoc to work with, he, he was a, he wasn't a postdoc, he was an employee, he had a PhD, um, um, to be uh, on my team. And he, so he was a UCLA employee. And in the middle of the Viking landing process, he came to me and asked, what do I put on my time card this week? <laughs> and they said, just put down exactly what you did and we'll submit it. Well, this is one week, 125 hours. And that was routine for about three weeks. Wow. Um, I had rented an apartment in Pasadena we called it the crash bad. It was, I think it was a five bedroom apartment or something, a huge place. And we just, it was a 15 minute drive from JPL. And that's all we did. You go to the pad, sleep for a while and come back round the clock. JPL, we were running on Mars time. The whole, the whole lab was running on Mars time. The flight team in those days was huge compared to what you guys are used to was 800 people and you could come to the to JPL any time of day or night and the parking lot was full. What had happened was, um, I'm diverting from Phil here, but um, this is my memory of these things are a little better. There were cameras on the orbiters. Now, Viking mission was two spacecraft a lander orbiter pair mated and they went into orbit around Mars. It wasn't direct entry like the Perseverance is. Mm -hmm. And the cameras were reasonable, you know, they're not much by today's standards, but they would give us a view of the surface of Mars far better than anything we'd seen before. And you guys can look into the history of how Mars became, you know, a desert world and a modern world and a wet world and so forth. Um, but the first images we got back, which we took of the landing site, were foreign to everybody, including the geologists. Mike Carr and Hal Mazursky were the primary geologists. And we looked at them and said, no way in hell can we land there because it turned out to be the, the floor of Kasai Vallis which is heavily pitted and eroded. And we didn't understand what it was at all. We just saw it was, there was a lot of topography. We cannot land there. And that was when Viking one arrived. Well, Viking two is three weeks behind it. Wait, sorry, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, when you were looking for landing sites, uh, do you remember kind of what the criteria were? Oh, yeah. Gen well, just generally? Generally. Mm -hmm. the, the problem was any obstacle bigger than half a meter would penetrate the bottom of the lander in the mm -hmm. landing process. Um, 
and the landing ellipse was I know huge, 100 by 150 kilometers in those days, huge. Mm -hmm. And so you had to have an area that big that didn't have any obstacles in it. And the reason the IRTM was selected partially was its ability to detect boulders. Um, the imaging systems were, were uh, I don't know what the, I forget, you, this would be interesting, you guys should look it up. What was the resolution available prior to Viking? It's, it's probably, you know, kilometer or bigger. You can't see a rock. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the primary criteria was it had to not have rocks. But the way one assessed that was we had three tools that we could use. Um, the imaging of, that was available radar backscatter and and thermal anomalies basically uh, temperatures those were the only tools we had well the other criteria Adi asked for the criteria um it also had to be we were going to sink in because we didn't really know um it had to have a it had to be in a latitude range where the um communications would work and the temperatures would be reasonable. Um, and it had to have a minimum surface pressure okay. for the parachute entry. So it had to be, it had to have an elevation criteria. The elevations were known well enough at that point. This was before any laser stuff, but the, the, the radar had, uh, we had a pretty good idea what the elevations were. Um, and so the, the primary thing was to find a place that once we got there, it wasn't rocky. Yeah. And, and so we went into this, um, okay, I have to go back to the setting. You remember you got two spacecraft coming in, one's three weeks ahead of the other. And the flight team can't handle landing two of them at a time. You got to get the first one down before the second one has to go through the entry process. I'm sorry, not entry. It was called, it's, at those points, it's Mars Orbit Insertion, MOI. You have to go into orbit insertion. Now, this is the way the Chinese are currently doing it. They're going into orbit and then landing later. And um, um, Viking, the Vikings both went into highly elliptical orbits with about a 24-hour period. Um, so where do we go from here? Okay, so the imaging... Um, when we first saw these images of the proposed, of the nominal landing site, we said we can't go there. And so now we've got to do a search on Mars um, to find at least one landing site within two weeks. And that's what set the schedule. People, I mean, it was just you know, all hands on deck. <laughs> um, and we started into this process. We had, I think, three weeks. But after about two weeks, the project manager, a guy named Jim Martin, called together myself, Hal Mazursky, Mike Carr, Jerry Soffin, who was the project scientist, um, Conway Snyder, who was the orbiter scientist, and what, a couple of the engineering teams, there, there were about seven of us, into a small room and said, we got to quit. The flight team is about to, is exhausted. Somebody's going to make a mistake. 
we have to land now. And, and so the seven of us said, did the best we could and said, okay, here. You know, we took all the data we had and we said, we'll go there. And that was the Viking one landing site. And, and that was an interesting process because ultimately, though you have 800 people working on the problem, <laughs> you have to make the decision with just a few. And so there was, I, th I think, seven of us. And that I don't believe that's recorded any place in, in the history. You know, there's a book by, um, um, there's a book called On Mars about the Viking landing. Sarah, have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that one. I'm going to look for that. So the one I'm talking about is this one. Okay. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. On Mars, it's by a pair of, I think, husband-wife team. What their names are? I've forgotten their names. Come on, let me see if I can find this. E Z E R L. Okay. 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 Okay, and it basically documents the Viking mission. And okay. then there's lots of other interesting books. Yeah, I just bought the uh, um, book, A Bunch of Plumbers. I forget who wrote that. I have to... A Bunch of Plumbers? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a book called The NASA Mon Conference. There's Physical Properties of Mars. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Mike Carr's Water on Mars. I'm sure you've seen that. Mm -hmm. Another Physical Planet. Physical properties of the planet Mars, mm -hmm. and um, the Book of Mars. I don't even remember what this one is. Samuel Gladstone, the Book of Mars. Okay. And of course, the other interesting thing, which I haven't gone into, but you may have seen part of, was called. Uh, God, what is it called now? JPL put together um, a collection of everything that was known about Mars. It's called the Scientific Model of Mars. It was a three-ring binder. Phil has a copy. Um, and there were two volumes. The first volume was basically text. The second volume was largely maps of, of the atmosphere, of the surface, all kinds of stuff. And I... Uh, Phil was digitized, the first volume. The second volume, I don't have a copy of, and the only copy I know of in existence is the JPL library. Mm. And I arranged for them to be able to loan that to Phil, and I don't know if that ever happened. Mm. Do you, you guys recall? No. I, no, I don't I know if Phil ever actually got the copy, but I did a series of negotiations with the JPL director and the library manager to get it approved that it could be digitized. Um, it's actually, oh, it, that might be a good segue to, in, into a question that I kind of wanted to ask about to back up the go back to KRC. Um, when you were developing the model, what did we already currently know about Mars? And then what did you kind of have to figure out in order to make a model that would physically represent what was happening with it? Uh, um, what do we know about Mars in 1968? Um, 
Well, there's the historic astronomic record, which was considerable um, in terms of, uh, and largely wrong. Um, <laughs> going back to, to um, you know, the mid, mid-century, 1950-ish, um, people knew very little about Mars. The general population thought there was inhabited by aliens. <laughs> um, this was a theory that had been promulgated by uh, Percival Lowell and, um, and his, the famous canals on Mars and um, all that stuff and War of the Worlds. Um, you guys probably know this. If you don't, you should learn the story of the War of the Worlds radio show. Um, but that represented reality for people in, in those days. Um, the first, there was a mission to Mars planned before Viking. It was called, there was a Voyager mission, not the one you know, but an earlier one called Voyager, which was a Mars lander mission based on the thought that the surface pressure on Mars was, I forget, it was 72 plus or minus three millibars. They thought it was very well known. Well, it turned out <laughs> the pressure on Mars is six millibars. They were planning on an atmosphere 10 times thicker than reality. <laughs> and that fact that the surface pressure was six millibars came out in a paper by three people, Guido Munch, who was a member of the member I mentioned earlier, he was a member of the IRTM team and these early IRTM. Guido Munch, uh, Hiram Spinrad, and Kaplan, I forget Kaplan's. It was Kaplan, Munch, and Spinrad, a paper that was so well known at the time, it was just referred to by its initials. If you talk to anybody in planetary business about KMS, they knew exactly what you were talking about. It was this paper that um, through studying not polarization, but actual band shape, concluded the surface pressure was six millibars. And um, so we knew what the surface pressure was. Of course, I killed the original Voyager mission entirely because it, it was designed to land on a different planet that didn't exist. Um, we, a lot was known about the atmosphere because uh, there'd been a program, um, a, a very formal Mars planetary monitoring program run by people around the world. So it was always night someplace. So Mars was being continuously observed for decades in terms of it, um, its appearance at modest resolution. And um, so there are things called the blue clearing, the wave of darkening, the canals. The canals, you know, aren't true. I don't know if you've heard about the wave of darkening and the blue clearing. The wave of darkening was a, uh, an accepted property of Mars where bands of darkness came out from the polar regions toward the equator in each spring, in the appropriate hemispheric spring. And this was thought to be a greening process, probably vegetation. Um, the blue clearing 
was uh, an event a lot of astronomers observed that certain, certain times of Mars atmosphere would become relatively, the contrast of the planet would increase in the blue fairly quickly. Um, and the thought that the atmosphere was somehow getting clear in the blue when nobody understood that, at least I, I don't recall any understanding of it. I mean, this was into the 60s um, when these missions were initially being conceived, the, the, the physical go-to-Mars missions were being conceived. And so a lot of this stuff was wrong. Our knowledge of Mars was <laughs> really um, very limited. And a lot of stuff we thought we knew was actually wrong. Um, and that, and that's where the Mariner 6 and 7 plus Mariner 9 reversal of attitudes toward the planet came about. And being a dead planet, being a live planet, who knows what planet. Um, and um, the first real, uh, real understanding of Mars came from the Viking mission. I mean, and that we went from not knowing very much correctly about Mars to knowing a lot correctly about Mars. Um, but at the time the, the IRTM was being designed, I had a pretty good idea what the range of temperatures was. We knew that the polar caps were carbon dioxide. That had uh, been assigned. We, we um, thought there was water in them. My thesis actually showed that if you had even a part per thousand of water, it would look like pure water. Um, and we, we did not understand or know much about the seasonal pressure variation. You could calculate it from the polar cap models, which are just very simple thermal models. Um, but that's pretty much what we had no idea what the materials were. We didn't know if there was vegetation or not, thought to be unlikely because of the low pressure. Um, Andy Ingersoll had written some papers, all, I think before Viking, about the evaporation rate and why we were unlikely to find open surface water. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that was known then. Um, you know, pyroxenes, come on. <laughs> okay, so essentially for KRC then, you were modeling conduction through the surface and you assume some rocky material, I'm assuming. And then above that, like you said, you, an you had an atmosphere, but it was just a sinusoidal wave of contributions of heat, IR yeah. radiation, and then- Through the day, yeah. The, the original, the original uh, atmospheric model for KRC was uh, a sinusoid in, of um, back radiation. Which was just like 2%. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. 2% of the incoming radiation was the night that was the atmospheric IR flux, approximately. Right? That sounds right. Yeah. And believe it or not, um, most, a lot of thermal models based on KRC, even today, use the same 2% approximation because oh. they, I'm not talking about the GCMs and all, but one dimensional simple models still use the two percent number really because krc is way beyond that i know yeah thermal model krc is actually atmosphere is actually pretty good i think mm -hmm. for a one layer model because i mean the essence of krc is the term i that thermal inertia 
Mm -hmm. All the surface properties that are important get rolled into that one parameter. And so that means you just run a series of parameters. And of course, we, we use different units in those days, but um, there were enough thermal observations that we could confine it to reasonable values. But, and, uh, and then from there on, you make, a, you know, make assumptions about the uh, specific heat because that's pretty confined for minerals of interest. It's not doesn't have a wide range. Um, and then the, the density and conductivity were just guesses. You can, you know, uh, we, we'd been to the moon a little bit, so we knew something about what the moon surface was like, but we didn't really know what Mars surface was like. We knew there were winds, but what the wind might do to the soil. You know, <laughs> there's another thing about my background and why I'm a Martian. Um, remember my first job was in the Mojave Desert. Mm -hmm. And when I was came back as a graduate student, I did master's theses equivalent. I never bothered to get a master's, but the equivalent, I did three, what are, uh, what do we call them? I did three projects. Um, one of which was studying um, clay lake beds, dry lakes in the Mojave Desert. Another one was on sand dunes, um, the detailed structure of sand dunes. I actually cross, if you can imagine making a cross section of a sand dune, <laughs> you know what a thin section is, you guys? Mm -hmm. Sure, may not, but yeah, you know, I make thin sections of sand dunes by pouring uh, a hardening plastic into the dune and then shoveling it out and taking it back and sawing it and polishing it. Hmm. And so, um, but I'm, as an individual, I've been a lot of places in the world, even at the time I entered my graduate school. I'd already been to the Antarctic. I'd, I'd been to Australia and the deserts of Australia, the Eastern coastal ranges of Australia. I'd been in Spain. Um, I'd been around New Zealand a lot. So I've seen a lot of deserts and arid regions and glaciated regions and tectonic regions, all of which help build an understanding of what might be at Mars. Um, I, you guys probably, I'm, you would have missed my lecture at Caltech on um, a stroll on the polar caps. You know anything about that? Have you probably never right. heard about it even? Was this in the early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah, we were like six years yeah. <laughs> at the time. Well, we the, the shame is that they didn't record that session. I gave a, a lecture which um, at Caltech called a stroll, on the, a stroll on the polar caps, a stroll on the polar night or something like that, um, which went over extraordinarily well. Um, um, I basically imagined that I didn't need a spacesuit, but I could just walk around yeah. on the poles. And I described the sounds and the feelings. And I even, at one point, I pulled up an umbrella and say, this is protecting me from the falling dust, you know, from the vents and so forth. And uh -huh. I had sandpaper noises and all kinds of stuff. And anyway, I, I just tried to carry the audience with me onto the surface of the polar night. And it, it, it seemed to work pretty well. Um, I don't know why we're there at the moment. 
<laughs> but that was uh, those that worked very well. Um, thermal models, yeah. There's some, see, albedo and inertia are the are the key parameters. So you just, I just, that's why I ran those grand total of three models. I guess kind of going off of that, then what was it like to validate the model um, as you guys started to learn a lot more about Mars through subsequent missions? Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's hard because I'm not sure quite how to interpret the question. Okay. What does it mean to validate a, a model? Um, the only validation that's been done are the um, little temperature measurements on the Curiosity rover. Mm. Um, and, and to some extent, the um, spectral measurements done by, by um, TESS. Um, no, Themis. Phil put out too many instruments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, in a sense, I mean, um, Robin Ferguson does validation, but that's only against another model. Mm -hmm. To really validate like something like this, you'd have to go measure what it purports to be measuring. You see, you'd have to take a thermometer and go measure surface temperatures on Mars. And very little of that has so far been done. Um, but I have pretty good confidence that, I mean, the physics is largely simple. Mm -hmm. um, the program's a little complicated, um, but applied to Mars, I, I think it's fine. I don't, um, so I'm not sure in the sense validate hasn't been done in that sense where you you'd actually take a material of known properties because that's the thing. They measure surface temperatures, but they know what the physical properties are. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's never been validated. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, um, as far as I know, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, the thing is in the lab, it's very difficult to emulate the sky environment. You can't get it to sky that cold. Um, I've been through this. I don't know if I've been through this discussion ever with you guys. Um, the thing that allows you to have solid carbon dioxide at the surface of Mars is its gravity field. Because that allows you to have enough surface pressure without having to have a confining roof. If you have a confining roof, then it's going to emit. Um, and and aside, I actually, I, th I thought of one time making a chamber out of infrared transparent material. Um, there are a few materials, they're very expensive. You have to build single crystals of barium sulfide, you know. It's basically, it's basically impossible on earth to generate the Martian environment. Um, completely. And so you, you can't validate it in that sense. But I think enough people have looked at it and enough people have run other models and compared them to KRC 
that, uh, I mean, completely independent models, including Adi, the one you did, I think at one point, um, and, and you get the same answers because the physics isn't that complicated. Or um, this is going back to Viking, but for Viking Lander 2, later we found out that there was ice just a few centimeters under the surface. So was that something, I mean, I, I think at the time we didn't really know until measurements from the Viking orbiters that there was right. probably permafrost or ice at those latitudes. Right. Um, it was not forecast. Right, okay. Well, except, well, wait a second. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll get the history confused here. Um, Jakowski and Farmer mm -hmm. 82, wrote a that paper. Was, that um, was in 82. Yeah, well, that, that, that was a KRC model. They just didn't bother to tell you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ran the model for them. Or Bruce maybe ran the models for them, but that was a KRC model. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if they forecast. I don't think anybody forecasted being that close to surface. Yeah. Because Leighton and Murray in 66 kind of said there'd be ice, but. That's uh, CO2 only. They didn't deal with water vapor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, you know, the expert on this stuff now is Mike Mellon mm -hmm. and, and a few other people, but. Um, no, I don't believe that we've, I didn't, I didn't try to run models with ice at the time of the Viking missions, I wasn't running icy substrates. Okay, and then is it true that um, when the first landing images came, people were gathered around wondering if there'd be life forms and things like that. And I've heard of a story where um, like Carl Sagan and a bunch of people were around a monitor and they had bats of whether they'd be elephants and <laughs> were you there at the time? I, don't, I was yeah. there, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't recall it. I can tell you some other stories. Okay. Now, because the principals, the evil principal members are now gone. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, Mary Mine. If you go back through the archives, you will find in Mariner 9, that one of the scientists announced that he had discovered evidence of lifelike stuff on Mars. In fact, he said there is methane. Um, uh, Mars has a lot of methane near the polar caps. And methane is um, a good signature of, of life. And he announced this at a press conference without telling anybody first. Um, this was um, the, the head of the um, infrared spectrometer that was on Mariner 9. And they had seen two bands of absorption bands in the polar regions that matched up with methane. And he announced this at a press conference and then it created all hell broke loose because NASA said, what are you saying? Because he had, <laughs> nobody really can, could confirm or support his observations. There's a background story here. This fellow was George Pimentel. He was a, a professor of chemistry at Berkeley. 
and in charge of the infrared spectrometer. Um, in my thesis, I of course grew CO2 ice and measured its uh, spectral reflectance and saw that there were these bands which I attributed to um, basically the, the phonon reactions in the crystal bands in CO2. And I had, we printed a few copies of my thesis and I had sent one to George Pimentel. And I got back a letter from saying, gee, this is interesting, nice job, Hugh. And this was well before we got to Mars with Mariner 9. When we got to Mariner 9, he made this announcement and I went up to him afterward and said, George, those bands are CO2 bands are in my thesis. And he said, I never read your thesis <laughs> to my face. Um, I did not make a big deal of it because there was plenty of pressure for him to retract this in the near future. Um, but that gives you an example of how much we didn't know <laughs> in 1969. Um, I don't know how we got onto that, but that's a, a little bit of the, uh, another little background story. Um, I, I, who knows how well my memory's doing on some of these things because hardly anybody could confirm this stuff anymore. But <laughs> actually, we're we're checking as you're talking. We're checking everything you're saying, and so far, yeah, you're, yeah eighty-six percent correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember uh, Bob Layton was the head of the imaging system. He was a physicist, but he he'd done imaging of the sun. He was a really good physicist, um, and uh, he. Um, he was talking about one of the, the people and he said, you know, scientists all have their own little biases. They're sort of like vectors that come out of them in certain direction that, you know, <laughs> they know what it is. And he described, we were about, to, we were about to have a press conference once and he described one guy, one of the scientists in the room just bristling with vectors. <laughs> <It> just left <laughs> a, a, I just immediately had this visual image of this guy with all these opinion labeled vectors coming off him in every direction. Um, interesting times. I mean, it was. Um, I've had a rich and a poor life. It's been rich in this kind of stuff. It's been poor and other things I could have done, but you only have so much time. Um, yeah, I've tried to do, I, I, I abandoned academia because I didn't want to live in a big city. I just was tired of living in congestion. And that's when I went to Flagstaff in 1978, uh, toward the end of the Viking mission and left uh, another professor, Ron Shreve, who was a geophysicist I knew well, because I'd spent a lot of time on glaciers with him. And he became Phil's official PhD advisor. He agreed to take over Phil, because I sort of abandoned Phil too. I mean, we, I just, I left UCLA for a year and then after a year made it permanent. Um, and so in a sense, um, I, Phil was, I may have provided certain directional inspiration or something to Phil, but he, he was on his own for a lot of his thesis, his graduate student stuff. Because I was either 
busy running a, you know, uh, an investigation on Mars or I was busy starting a new life in Flagstaff. Um, so, you know, maybe that gave him a sense of independence that has served him well since. He's certainly done well. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably heard my statement. I told Phil, I said, yeah, I had, a, I had six or seven PhD students because I only stayed at UCLA for 10 years. Um, and one was Bruce Joukowsky, one was Dave Page, one was Bill Christensen. Um, and the other three you probably don't know well, one's a professor of astronomy in Indiana. One left science to become, to manage his wife's residential, her, her uh, realty business when her father died and he took over the family business. Another left after doing a thesis on scattering in Saturn's rings to go into the financial market and make a fortune hmm. because he really understood statistics and physics and stuff. So of the three that, that really stayed, um, they've been extremely successful. Hmm. All of them have been PIs or even mission PIs. I mean, Bruce and Dave both have been mission PIs. Phil's been instrument PI on what, six or seven things that have gone to Mars. So I tell Phil, you hear this, Adi, if your graduate students are as good as mine, you will have done well. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, he's certainly implying the same techniques of going away for most of it. <laughs> I mean, being busy. Oh, he's, yeah, he's busy all the yeah. time. He's, yeah, he's been very busy. Well, he should. He knew what he was getting into because um, I, I, I probably told him at the beginning. I said, "If you become a PI, it's a serious commitment." I have known guys who became PIs and weren't that serious about it. I mean, they they were serious, but they weren't twenty five hours a day on it. Yeah. And it doesn't usually end up. There's so many little things you have to be have to think about in advance. Because once you launch the Bloomin' thing, you, you got what you got. And, uh, and that process of trying to anticipate everything that's gonna influence your experiment takes a lot of time and thought and a great attention to detail. Yeah. And the guys who don't do that typically don't get good experiments. Um, Sarah spent like five years working on a, a small satellite, CubeSat, that launched a year ago, and she was the program manager and uh, chief engineer. So, so were you, about how much that. sleep did you get? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd rather not say. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely a 25-hour day commitment for about five years. Yeah. So. No, it, it's what it takes to, to do this stuff. You just mm -hmm. can't. I mean, you, you guys saw the, um, I maybe didn't see, I, I've turned over a lot of stuff to Phil, which was recently scanned. Um, and there's all kinds of little things in there. When we started this business, when I started in, as a Martian scientist, roughly basically say the time I started my PhD thesis, which was 1966 or so. A lot of things weren't there. Facilities that you 
just assume weren't there. I mean, um, statistical packages, they barely existed. Um, IDL, which a lot of us use, you know, that was not even a dream at that point. <laughs> um, you know, mathematical routines, if you, you know, you pretty much had to write them. Um, and I see that I might, I'm just, you won't see this, but a little alarm has come up just over your head, Sarah, that says I have five minutes to my next one. Um, why don't you absorb this and see if, <clears throat> if, if uh, there's things we left out. I, I imagine you'll find holes mm -hmm. and we can do it again sometime. That would be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, this has been fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's mm -hmm. well, it's also in well for me, it's been very nice to meet you. <laughs> um, I mean, well, we've met before, I think. I'm I'm pretty sure I've seen you down there, someplace or other. Maybe you were just fully working at it. I don't think so. I don't think so. I joined Phil's group a year ago, but it was basically like it was right before COVID started, and then everyone kind of. Uh you know, was working from home and stuff. Um, but yeah, before that, I, I was, I mean, the the CubeSat that we worked on was at ASU, but it was like entirely its own separate thing. Yeah, so. Well, my COVID experience is pretty interesting because on the 11th of March, we dropped into the Grand Canyon for a week of hiking <laughs> with no communications, whatever expecting to come out and catch the bus back oh, yeah. to our car. <laughs> yeah, he's told me the story. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the world was different. And so such it is now. Well, okay, guys, it's been fun. <laughs> I'm a little like, getting a little hoarse. <laughs> <laughs> but I have tea right here. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, have a good day. The go away button, and I got to go find another one of these. <laughs> Hope you're doing well, Adi, in your work. And yeah, uh, thank you. All right. Cheers, guys. Okay. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>
But that aside, if you guys have been enjoying this content and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who may be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Finally, if you happen to have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to just get in touch with me via email or find me on LinkedIn. Whatever floats your boat suits your fancy. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers. Sarah.